several months. We start this new series today. Uh, it is um, a great joy to be here today. Uh, I would say welcome to Redemption Church. Uh, this is a new season in the life of this church community. Uh, not only have we uh, moved our worship services to a new location, this school, Warren Road Elementary School, uh, by God's grace, we have a new um, office and base of operations at 1124 Broad Street. Uh, so we'd love for you to come uh, check that out as well. Uh, Redemption Church, our purpose as a church, uh, we say, is gospel, community, and mission. Gospel is the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ by whom we have redemption. Community is the new identity we have together gathered around this good news of redemption. And mission is stewarding this good news of redemption in all areas of life, in family, work, school, the neighborhoods in which you live, the culture in which we are a part. And so our hope uh, as a church called Redemption is that we would experience the good news of personal redemption in the context of community on mission together. That's our purpose. That's our hope that God would bring that uh, to pass for his glory and our joy. So uh, I want to welcome you here today. Uh, there are uh, numerous uh, faces here that are new, and we're glad you're here. And we just want to say that no matter where you are in your stage of faith, whether you are a, a veteran believer, a longtime Christian, or a new believer, or merely, merely uh, exploring the Christian faith, we're glad you're here. And it's our hope that, uh, that God would en- encounter us all here today. Um, as we begin the series in Ephesians, I'd like to start by saying as humans, we have a series, uh, we experience a series of identity crises. We as humans are endlessly pursuing things in which we find our identities. Uh, usually, those things can be uh, sin or idols. Now, sin can be anything that is an act of rebellion against God. Uh, it's something we do when we act in self-sufficiency to try to, to fulfill our own desires and to chase our own dreams and to do whatever we think we need apart from God. That's sin. Idols, on the other hand, are, are things in which we would find our identity and security uh, apart from self-sufficiency and apart from uh, God's intervention. Often those can take the shape of uh, maybe money or status or uh, image, and idols can... Uh, be good things too, such as education or uh, you know good moral living. Those are good things. But anytime we find uh, our identity wrapped up in something uh, ultimately other than God, uh, that becomes an idol for us. In our culture today, it's most often in the form of uh, good moralism. We want to do better, try harder. We want to improve ourselves, maybe so that God would accept us, or improve ourselves so that we would stop being bad people and we could become good people. But in the end, that is an idol, because uh, God is not in that. So as we start this series on Ephesians today, I want to ask you this. What is it for you that you find your identity in? I mean, in what do you find your identity? Is it a, a sin, maybe something of your past Maybe uh, there was a dark period of your life that has, has set your life on a trajectory and, and you just find your, your identity wrapped up in the sins and failures of your past. If so, that is uh, not the gospel. Maybe it is an idol in which you find your identity. Maybe it is the school you attend or the status you have or the job you hold or how much money is in your bank account or how many friends you have on Facebook. That's an idol. And if you find your identity wrapped up in those things apart from God, ultimately uh, you will find yourself uh, hurting and longing for something more. Because sin always leads you to a dark place away from God. And idols always need to be fed. 
And ultimately, idols destroy the hearts of their worshipers. So, the good news is that Christians no longer live in a world defined by sin. As Christians, we no longer find our identity in the idols in which we serve. You see, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is we have a new identity because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And this is the whole premise of the book of Ephesians, is that in Christ, we have a new identity, an identity of redemption. We have been redeemed from the sins of our pasts. We have been redeemed from the idols of our present. We have redeemed to a living hope toward the future in Christ Jesus. So today, as we begin the book of Ephesians, it's my prayer for us as we go through this series over the, over the next several months. We'll be in the first chapter of Ephesians uh, for a while, and, and this will carry us into the new year. And it is my hope and prayer as a church that we would look honestly at who we are and how we are apart from Christ. That by God's grace, his Holy Spirit would convict us of the sins by which we define ourselves, and many of us are very comfortable in those sins. That God would convict us of the idols in which we serve that are destroying our hearts because we are feeding them, feeding them, and feeding them apart from Christ. It is my hope and prayer that God would awaken our hearts and minds to understand who we are and how we are apart from Christ and the utter need we have to be redeemed and transformed by the Holy Spirit. It is my hope and prayer that as we move forward as Redemption Church, that we would just not be a a new church gathering in the city, but we would be a people who are being transformed, redeemed from the sins of our past, redeemed from the idols of our present, redeemed with the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ. You with me? Sounds fun, right? Well, let me pray, and then we'll dive into the book of Ephesians. Father God in heaven, Lord, I thank you for this morning, a time to gather with your people, a time to gather as your people. Lord, a time to gather and celebrate who you are and what you've done on our behalf. Got a time to celebrate the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And God, for all of us gathered here in various stages of faith, Lord, whether we are longtime Christians, new Christians, or not yet Christians, merely exploring the faith, God, I thank you that you have called us here, you have gathered us here, and that now we have the great opportunity to open your scriptures, your word, that your Holy Spirit has inspired, that your Holy Spirit has preserved for our benefit today, and that, God, I ask that by your Holy Spirit you would open our minds to understand and our hearts to receive this good news. Lord, that you would transform us God, remind us of the identity we have in Christ to be uh, your redeemed people and show us what that looks like uh, in our day-to-day lives. God, we thank you that you were good. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Friends, the good news of redemption is that in Christ Jesus, by the will of God, we are made faithful saints. That's good news. By the will of God and in Christ Jesus, we are transformed to be faithful saints. 
As we open the book of Ephesians, we see that Paul is an apostle of God, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, he says in the very first verse. And he's writing this letter to a church in Ephesus. Now, Paul was once a, an elite religious leader in the Jewish community. He was a devout, spiritual, intelligent, and powerful man. He also was uh, corrupt, a persecutor of the early church. Following what he thought was a good idea, ended up killing several Christians early on. But Jesus saves him. If you read in the book of Acts, you can see this wonderful story about how Jesus shows up, saves Paul out of his sins, saves Paul out of his idolatry, transforms Paul. And this is how Paul opens this letter. Paul, he's an apostle. That means he's sent by God with good news, by the will of God in Christ Jesus. You see, through several missionary journeys, Paul helps new churches start. He raises up new leaders, trains young pastors, And over time, Paul writes a series of letters we know as epistles. Ephesians is one of these epistles. He's writing of the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. He's writing practical instruction of how this shapes our day-to-day living as Christians. Now, Ephesus is a port city on a river on the west coast of what's modern-day Turkey. During the first century, it was the third largest city in that part of the world. It was a thriving center of commerce, a thriving center of politics, uh, a thriving center of culture. I actually read somewhere that it was a training center for magic, so Hogwarts, maybe. (laughs) It had a very strong, thriving religious culture that dictated everything about the city. Actually, one of the seventh wonders of the world was there. It was the temple to uh, the goddess Artemis, who was the mother goddess, the protector and nourisher of the people. Apparently, this temple was larger than a modern-day football field made of marble. Obviously, one of the seventh wonders of the world. It had to be miraculously uh, you know, beautiful and stunning. And this, this had a huge influence on the culture, not only in Ephesus as a third-largest city in that part of the world, but, but uh, the surrounding areas, being a center for culture, a center for commerce, a center for politics, a center for, for spiritual and religious studies for that part of the world. And so Paul uh, helps a church get off the ground there, the church at Ephesus, who is planted in a culture that's thriving with sin and idolatry, thriving uh, economically and politically and spiritually. And he writes to this culture, which is very similar to ours today. He writes to proclaim the good news that Jesus is Lord over all of creation. He's announcing the new identity that Christians, that believers have in Jesus and how that changes everything. How that frees you from the sin and guilt of your past. How that frees you from the idols of your present that that woo your heart away from God and ultimately will destroy your heart. He's writing of the hope we have in the future and the joy we have in the present. You see, the good news of Jesus that Paul is reminding the Ephesians church for the, for the whole uh, of this book is that there is good news of a new identity being formed, a new reconciliation we have in Christ, a new transformation and unity in the body of Christ. I like movies, and I've not yet seen the latest Batman installment, but several years ago the movie The Dark Knight came out, and uh, it's a fantastic movie. And there's this one scene where, uh, you know, Batman is, you know, on this ledge and he's like, hey, it's not who I am, but what I do that defines me. Okay, that, that statement stands out. He's like, it's not who I am, but what I do that defines me. 
Now, that's a great statement for a superhero whose, whose whole identity is wrapped up in how he serves the city. Like if, if Batman is doing things to rescue people, then he's Batman. But if he's like reading a book at Barnes & Noble and not helping people, well, he's just some weird guy in a costume, right? And so that makes sense for a superhero. It's not, it's not who I am, but what I do that defines me. That's great for Batman, but that's not the gospel. The gospel has nothing to do with what you do that defines you. Rather, that's what an idol does. An idol says, look, you do this, and then you will have worth. You will do this, and you will have happiness. You will do this, and then you will be accepted and approved. Right? You have this much money in your bank account, then you've made it. You have this many friends on Facebook, then you're popular. That's what idols tell you. It's what you do that defines you. But we know the good news of Jesus Christ is not about who we are and what we do, but rather who Christ is and what he's done for us. And so Paul is announcing that good news to the Ephesians church that says, look, your whole society is defined by the commerce you bring into your city as the third largest city in this part of the world. Your whole identity is wrapped up in the political influence you have in the Roman Empire. Your identity is wrapped up in, in having one of the seventh wonders, one of the seven wonders of the world in, in your doorstep, man. This huge marble temple to Artemis, who you worship and worship and, and everything. I mean, worship to Artemis had like temple worship, but they also had like huge athletic events. They had huge like theatrical spectacles. I mean, like the whole creative arts culture was based around Artemis in the city of Ephesus. And so Paul is writing saying, look, this is defining everything, who you are and what you do. And then she's an idol. And Paul is saying, look, you are no longer defined by your commerce, by your politics, by your magic, by your spirituality, by your creative culture. Rather, you are defined by who Christ is and what he's done for you. That's an identity of redemption. And so as we kick off the book, I want to bring out four things today just to set the stage for where we're going through the book of Ephesians, what Paul writes to this early church of what it means to have a new identity in Christ Jesus. Okay, the first two verses again say this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ right in the middle of those phrases, in Christ Jesus. This defines everything for you and I as Christians. This defines everything for us. A new identity in Christ Jesus in this passage today tells us a few things. First, being in Christ Jesus, uh, Jesus moves us from sinners to saints. Being in Christ Jesus we move from being unfaithful to faithful. Being in Christ Jesus, we move from conflict to peace. And in Christ Jesus, we move from self-sufficiency to grace. Okay? So first we see that in Christ Jesus, we move from sinners to saints. Right? Paul even writes here in the first, in the first verse, he says, to the saints who were in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. You see, the word saint is, is a wonderful word. I mean, I, I went to school in New Orleans, so the New Orleans Saints, you know, I'm a huge football fan. Just kidding. Um, you know that uh, being a saint, often in our culture, will say, that just means you're a good moral person. I mean, how many of you guys know somebody who's just like, maybe a great humanitarian, very generous, very giving? You're like, man, that person is a saint, right? In the biblical context, 
the word saint it, it refers to God's people throughout the Old Testament. I mean, for somebody to be a saint, it means that you, you are made holy, that you are set apart as holy, that you are a holy person for a holy purpose. Now, that word is used throughout the Old Testament to describe God's people. You can see it throughout the book of, uh, of uh, Exodus, for example, that, that God is setting apart his people for a holy purpose. Now, for Paul to write that statement to the church at Ephesus it just has a profound, uh, a profound effect on the hearers. I mean, because he's writing to a culture that is largely Gentile, that is highly non-Jewish, highly non-biblically religious. He's writing to a culture that is thriving in, in pagan spirituality, that is thriving in, in secular values. And he's writing to them this huge city. I mean, just think about somebody writing, writing to like, you know, somebody in Hollywood, right? Just here, let's just do this. Let's just say, let's, let's pick out, uh, you know, a, a demographic of West Hollywood uh, porn producers. And Paul says, look, you're a saint. You have been made holy. God is setting you apart for a holy purpose. This is what Paul is doing. He is writing to the Ephesian church, believers that are coming up in a non-Jewish, a non-biblically religious sense, a very pagan culture. And he is saying that he is describing them with the same word that God describes his people throughout the Old Testament. I mean, he is equating the most uh, wretched pagan culture with the most spiritually, religiously loved people of God. I mean, that's huge, folks. It's, it's easy for us to say, uh, the saints were in Christ, yeah, that's the church-going people. No, not at all. On the contrary, it's those who are going to the temple to worship Artemis. It's those who are going to the temple to, to, uh, to, to be wooed by the cultural, uh, cultural creativity of the day, the commerce of the day, the politics of the day, the spirituality of the day. And Paul says, no, in Christ, that's no longer what defines you. You are a saint. You've been made holy. You've been set apart as holy. You belong to God. You are now a holy person for a holy purpose. This is great news. Because cosmically, Paul is saying, you are being joined into the family of God. Now, in the first century context, I mean, when, when you read all of the Old Testament, you see that God has his, his people of Israel set apart for a holy use. They're, they're his covenant people. And, and you see that, that, that they are his children that he loves and that he is pursuing time and time again. He, he's not pursuing other cultures as much that we see in the Old Testament. But what Paul says is that in Christ Jesus, all of those other cultures are now joined into the family of God. Now, the implications for this are huge because it's not just, okay, you can just keep on sinning. You can keep worshiping Artemis and, you, and you'll still be in the family of God. Not at all. We'll get to that in a second. Paul is writing to, to set up the framework of, look, this new identity is going to change how you act, how you live. The things that you do do not determine who you are, but rather who you are determines the things that you do, right? It's not what you do that defines you, but it's how you've been defined that determines how you live. And so Paul writes and says, look, you are now joined as a saint. You're no longer a sinner. You're no longer defined by the, by the wicked rebellion against God, but rather you were defined by who Christ is because you are saints in Christ Jesus. So friends, let me ask you this. What sins have defined your life? 
I mean, what in your life has, has been a wicked thing? Maybe some well, one-time thing you've done 20 years ago? Or maybe the fraternity you were a part of in college? I mean, may, maybe where you came from last night or what you did this morning is a sin that you're hanging on to that's defining how you live your life? You're carrying guilt, you're carrying shame, you're carrying bitterness. Friends, the good news that, is that in Christ Jesus, we are no longer defined by those sins. You are no longer defined by the guilt of your past or the shame of your present. The good news is that in Christ Jesus, you are no longer defined as a sinner. He makes you a saint. A holy person for a holy purpose. It's not do better, try harder so that you can become a saint. It is that in Christ Jesus, you are a saint. That's good news, right? That's good news. That is gospel news. But secondly, Paul says that not only in Christ Jesus we move from sinners to saints, but in Christ Jesus we move from unfaithful to faithful. We move from unfaithful to faithful because he says to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, the theme of faithfulness and unfaithfulness is again throughout the Old Testament scriptures and in the New Testament scriptures as well. You you see that God's people through the Old Testament, Israel, they were, they were God's holy people. They were his saints. They were set apart for a holy purpose. But we see that they were unfaithful. The, the God says, God's like a, a husband chasing down his bride. And rather than the bride responding with, with a, a covenant love and loyalty back to the husband, she's an unfaithful uh, bride. In fact, Scripture calls her a whoring bride. That the, the, the Israel is chasing idols time and time again, and, and Israel chases cultural whims and is, is jettisoning the, the love of God. And often we could look at that and say, man, how could they do that? Like you read the book of Exodus and you say, man, God did all these miracles and set them free so they could go worship him and just, you know, plagues and stuff and like you know, parting of the Red Sea. That's fantastic. Here's the Ten Commandments. And then they start chasing other idols. And we could say, how could they do that? We do the same thing. I mean, you just open this scripture and hear this good news that in Christ Jesus you are a saint. But sometime this week, some idol or sin is going to woo your heart away. I mean, at some point this week, there's going to be a moment where you're like, I know God has called me to think this, but I'm choosing to think something else. I mean, I know God has changed how I am supposed to live, but I'm going to look at this thing anyway. Nobody's around, right? I know that God has called me to act this way toward my neighbor, but you know what? I just don't like that guy right now. You see, sin and idols still woo our hearts away from God, but in Christ Jesus, we are moved from unfaithful, whoring people to faithful saints. Right? Today, many of it can take the shape of money, sex, power, status, even good things such as success in business or education. Those idols can woo us. The idols of the human heart are often taking the shape of, uh, of power and control, of acceptance and approval. Things that we say, like, I want to be accepted, I want to be approved of, so maybe if I can do this, people will accept me or people will approve me, and we, we chase those idols of the human heart. So again, I'll ask you, how do you define yourself? I mean, does the sin of your past define you? If not, uh, if so, that you're, you're no longer defined by your sin, you're a saint. But likewise, do the idols of your present define you? Like your status and your approval, acceptance, your power? If so, in Christ Jesus, you are being moved from an unfaithful person that's chasing an idol to a faithful person, a faithful saint. The word faithful 
in Scripture has greater connotations just than, than belief. I know we'll say, well, I'm faithful because I believe the right things. Well, that's part of it. But faithful is an ongoing, active believing in something. Right? So if you are a faithful saint, that means Christ has made you, taken you from a sinner to a saint. You are now a holy person for a holy purpose. And that you are faithful, Paul says. Here he calls them saints in Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. That means that you, you are actively believing. There is an active, ongoing belief in the gospel. An active, ongoing repentance, which means to, to, to change your mind, to, to turn away from something toward Christ. Uh, this is what defines faithful Christians. It is not how good you can act, but, but how quickly you can repent, right? Right? I mean, that, that's, that's good news. When you are a saint, it doesn't mean that you are like the most holy person in the world. It means that God has set you apart for a holy purpose. And being faithful doesn't mean that you just have the perfect little life that every just, I'm just got all buttoned up and just look how perfect I am. Not at all. To be faithful means that you are quick to believe and quick to repent. It means you're quick to turn, quick to change your mind when you say, look, I can't live the perfect life. I guarantee you at some point this week, a bad word will slip out of my mouth. I mean, just ask my, don't ask my wife. <laughs> Take my word for it. At one point this week, I'm going to slip up and say something dumb, Okay. Now, the attitude of my heart will say, oh, I'm just a wretched sinner. No, in Christ, I've been set apart as a holy person for a holy purpose. All right, faithful doesn't mean, well, I'm never going to say a bad word again. A faithful means in that moment I stop and I say, God, in that moment I have not believed the good news that you have transformed me. And in that moment, I chose to, to say something that didn't honor you or build up those around me. So, so Lord, I repent. I, I, I want to change. I want to turn to you which is what repentance means. That's just one small vice of mine. Ooh, there's a whole trunk load. Stick around redemption, you'll hear more about them. Because the good news of Jesus is that we are no longer defined by the sins of our past or the idols of our present. We're no longer defined by who we were or who we are apart from Christ, but rather we are transformed and identified by who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Jesus moves us from sinners to saints. He transforms us from unfaithful to faithful so that we will actively believe the gospel, actively, ongoingly repent and turn to him. This is not a thought. It's not an emotion. It's an action. It's not our own piety or good works, but it's turning to a faithful Christ. That's what it means to be a saint. That's what it means to be faithful, is that we believe that Christ is our all in all. That's what we believe that we have forgiveness and assurance in Christ. That means that we believe that Jesus is bigger than our sins, better than our idols, and anytime we're confronted with temptation to follow those sins or follow those idols, we stop and we turn, we, we repent, and we look to Jesus who is faithful. That's good news. Third, so Jesus moves us from sinners to saints, from unfaithful to faithful. Third, Paul says that in Christ Jesus, we move from conflict to peace. Because he writes here, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a huge statement. The concept of peace, the concept of shalom, the concept of a right relationship between God and man and man with each other is huge. 
right, is this biblical concept that we see opens. I mean, in the beginning, in Genesis, God creates everything out of nothing. He creates everything good. He creates man and woman, says this is very good, and things are right. In Genesis 3, sin enters the world, rebellion happens, and the rest of the Bible it, it is just disastrous. And so God intervenes. I mean, God even promises in, in Genesis 3 that he's like, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to come rescue you. I'm going to deal with Satan, sin, and death once and for all. And so all of Scripture is pointing to unfaithful sinners trying to find peace in sin or idols. That's this whole plot line of the Bible. It starts with, with Adam and Eve. And it goes on through individuals, uh, you know, Abraham, and when we got all these guys up, Moses, and, and then whole nations of people like Israel that are saying, we are unfaithful sinners that are going to try to find peace in sin and idols. And the whole time God is saying, I am a faithful God who is coming after you to rescue you, to transform you from sinners to saints, from unfaithful to faithful, to bring you from conflict to peace. That's the plot line of the Bible. Now, don't take the Cliff Notes version, but, but read it. It's amazing. It's beautiful to see God chasing down his unfaithful people, chasing down his wretched sinners, chasing down us as people who try to find our identity in sin, and that brings us to ruin and conflict. Chasing down idols to find fulfillment, but that brings us to conflict as well. You see, the good news is that in Christ Jesus, we move from conflict to peace. We have right relationship with God and each other, both in eternity and the present. As we go through the book of Ephesians, you will see that there's imagery to use to describe, uh, describe the church. The church is a temple where God's spirit dwells. Uh, the church is, is a body that, that works together. And, and, and as we get to that in, in Ephesians 2 and 3 and 4, it, we'll get to see how, how he lays it. I'll remind you because it's a couple months away. But when we get back there, I'll say, hey, remember the first, I mean, in, in Paul's opening two statements, he like sets the tone for this. Because to have peace means we have right relationship with God. And as, as a church, we are the temple of God. We're God's dwelling place. That means we have a right relationship with God. God's not going to come dwell where he's not welcome. Okay? The church is compared to the body of Christ. That means we have a right relationship with each other because you don't have thumbs poking the eyeballs out, right? No. You have the body working together, the hand working with the arm, working with the elbow, working with the shoulder, right? So you have a right relationship with God and each other. That's what peace means. That's what shalom is about. It means that sin is dealt with, idols are defeated, that Jesus accomplishes it all, takes his people from sinners to saints, from unfaithful to faithful, from conflict to peace. I'm going to ask you to do something. Think right now about the last conflict you've had with a person. It may have been this morning with your spouse or your children. Think about the last conflict you had with somebody in this room, maybe in your missional community or just a friendship Think about the last conflict you had with your boss at work or a teacher at school or somebody like your neighbors because their dog pooped in your yard. Think about the last conflict you had. Anytime we have conflict, it arises when we take our eyes off of Jesus. That's when conflict happens. All right, if you have a conflict with your spouse, the issue is not your spouse. The issue is that you've taken your eyes off of Jesus and you're looking at your spouse through your own eyes and not the eyes of Jesus. 
right? When you have a conflict with your child, you've forgotten the identity that God has given you as a, the role he's given you as a parent, and, and you're conf- you have conflict with your child. If you have a conflict with another believer, it's because one or both of you have taken your eyes off of Jesus, and you're fighting over who knows what. It happens through Ephesians, so we'll get there. It's great. I mean, Paul writes in Ephesians 4 about unity in the body of Christ. Why is he writing about unity in the body of Christ? Because in Ephesus, they had some disunity going on. <laughs> we have disunity in this church from time to time. We have conflict. And at the root of it all, it's because we have taken our eyes off of Jesus. So Paul opens the book of Ephesians and says, before I lay out all this great theological stuff, and before I lay out all this great practical wisdom of how to live as God's people, he's going to, in the first two sentences, say, look, you're saints. You're no longer sinners. You're saints. Remember that identity. You were a saint. You were faithful because you are ongoingly believing and repenting and looking to a faithful Christ who has saved you and made you a saint. Thirdly, in Christ, you no longer are in conflict. You are in peace, shalom, right relationship with God, right relationship with each other. If you remember those three things, it'll get a little easier. And friends, I'll just say we, you know, just as, a, as the over-churched, over-religious culture in which we live, we, we pride ourselves on how much we know and how good we are. And that is an idol as well that most of us in this room probably need to repent of. I know I do. I know I do. When you start a new church in a city that has more churches per capita than any other place on the planet, there's probably an ounce of pride somewhere in the mix. And God will humble you in many ways. Take me to lunch and I'll tell you thousands of ways that God is, you know, the moment we keep, we, the moment we take our eyes off of Jesus, we experience conflict. But, but Paul reminds the Ephesians church that in Christ Jesus, we are moved from conflict to peace because when we look to Christ, we have a right relationship with God, right relationship with each other. All right, fourthly and finally, Jesus moves us from sinners to saints, from unfaithful to faithful, from conflict to peace. And fourth and finally, in Christ Jesus, we move from, this is great, we move from self-sufficiency to grace. Ah! Right? We move from self-sufficiency. What do you mean self-sufficiency? <laughs> right, that, right there. <laughs> self-sufficiency to grace. What I mean by that is this grace, and this is what's fantastic. I mean, everybody should take Greek, New Testament Greek's a little different than classic Greek. Okay, take Greek. Because when you, when you read this, when you read first century writings, it was, it was very common for them to greet each other with grace. It was just like saying, hey, how you doing? Grace to you. All right, Paul uses, he tacks on a little different, he tweaks out the word grace here. All right, so, so when he says grace to you in peace, he's not just throwing out the word, hey, how you doing? Grace. He throws out the word grace, uh, it's a variant that has a theological implication to it, okay? Just so you know, the karen means, hey, how you doing? Karis means what I'm about to tell you. There's theological implications beyond just a mere greeting. Grace is a word that means undeserved, unmerited favor that stems from God's goodness, not yours, right? Unmerited undeserved favor that comes from God's goodness, not your goodness. So Paul is writing to a first century church, third largest city in that part of the world, center for commerce, center for politics, center for religious training and creative arts and athletics and just, man, they're just a super cool city. 
And he says, God is bestowing his love and favor on you because he is good. You're not good. You're a wreck. You're sinners. You're unfaithful. You are in conflict constantly. But God and his goodness extends undeserved, unmerited favor to you because he is good and he loves you. And because of that, you're not a sinner. You're a saint. Because of that, you're not unfaithful. You're faithful. Because of that, you're not in conflict. You're, you have peace. Right relationship with God. Right relationship with each other. I love it. I mean, Ephesians 2 is one of the just, it's the chapter that has changed my life forever when Paul writes this, by grace you have been saved and not of works. It's a gift of God that changed my life. That God's unmerited, uh, God's, God's loving kindness, his goodness would stoop down and, and save a sinner like me, an idolater like me, someone who is unfaithful and fickle and proud. And Paul, from the very first two sentences of his statement, says, to the saints who are in Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let that blow your mind. I mean, that's how you start a letter, my friends. Not, dear John, how you doing? No, he's like, let me tell you guys something. I'm just going to throw this out there. Before I even talk about anything, I just want to let you know that you're no longer sinners, you're saints. You're no longer unfaithful, you are faithful. You're no longer in conflict, you're in peace. You're no longer self-sufficient, do better, try harder, clean yourself up. God accepts you and approves of you and loves you in Christ Jesus. And that's good news. That changes everything for us. So friends, as we let this sink in and as we look forward to the rest of the book of Ephesians, let me just say, may we allow God's Holy Spirit through his word to chop up our hearts a little bit. All right? May we confess sin. May we confess idols. I mean, maybe we acknowledge, just be real with ourselves. We can't lie to God. We really can't lie to each other. Let's be real with who we are and how we are apart from God and ask God to convict us of our sins. And friends, do not run back to your sin that defined your past. It brings you to conflict, man. In Christ Jesus, you're not a sinner, you're a saint. So don't run back to the sin. Shed it off. Be free of the guilt. Be free of the burden of sin because you're not a sinner, you're a saint. So don't act like a sinner. In Christ, you're not an unfaithful idolater. You're a faithful son of God. You're a faithful daughter of God. So let's not be wooed by cultural idols, traditional idols, idols of emotion in the human heart. Let's not feed our idols because they'll destroy our hearts, but let's see that the idols have been defeated in Christ Jesus. We're no longer unfaithful idolaters. And friends, may we run to Christ the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who transforms us, makes us faithful, brings us peace in community with each other. May we live these things out with one another, reminding each other of this good news. May we meet together and celebrate this good news on Sundays. May we meet together in each other's homes for missional communities and DNA groups and just casual cookouts. Let's just go hang out and say, hey, how's it going? Grace to you, peace to you. May we be faithful to worship the God who saves us and be quick to turn and to repent and point others to do the same. Let me pray. Father God in heaven, Lord, I thank you for your goodness to us. God, that you are a good, faithful, 
covenant-keeping God. God, throughout all eternity, you've existed perfectly and wonderfully and beautifully and, and that you create everything out of nothing and in so doing, uh, allow uh, your people to uh, worship you. But God, our hearts are fickle and we chase sin and idols. And so, Lord, I confess to you the sin of my heart. I confess to you the idols of my life. God, I thank you that in Christ I'm no longer a sinner or an unfaithful idolater. But God, in you, uh, you've made me a son, you've made me a prince. And so, God, I thank you for my friends in this room. And, Lord, I pray an ongoing movement of your spirit to convict our sin, to defeat our idols, and, God, to draw us to you in all peace and all grace. God, may we know that we, our lives, our identity now is, is defined by grace and that we live in grace and that as, as missionaries we've been sent with this grace, this good news to everyone we know, everywhere we go, everywhere we are. And God, I pray that in all things you would get much glory, that we would get much joy, and that this good news would go forth in this city and beyond. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.